0: Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Francesca Webster, CEO and founder of Brazilian Beauty. It's wonderful to have you along today. I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're achieving some great goals for you, your business and your family. This conversation today is a great one with Francesca because she's got an amazing story of building a business from scratch to being very successful. And where I work in Brisbane, every day I walk past a Brazilian beauty salon, and so it was great to hear the story behind the brand, and in particular, such an inspirational story about somebody who's been able to build success from a zero base. Before I introduce Francesca to you, let me introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment needs, I look forward to speaking to you about those. Let me now introduce to you Francesca Webster. Francesca founded Brazilian Beauty in 2004 and since that time has grown the business to 21 salons throughout southeast Queensland and into the southern states of Australia. The business now has a turnover in excess of $16 million per annum and employs more than 200 people. She's an incredible entrepreneur with a fantastic story. She now lives in Brisbane with her family and her dog which has a special place in this story to be revealed later in the conversation sit back and enjoy this conversation with francesca webster
1: well
0: um- Francesca, welcome to a beautiful uh, sunny day in Brisbane and having the opportunity to have a chat to you on the Arrate podcast. It's excellent to uh, finally get this chance to sit down with you. I suppose just to begin with, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your current professional responsibilities are?
2: Yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me on, Richard. Um, So currently, I'm the CEO and founder at Brazilian Beauty. Uh, So that's a chain of 21 salons across Australia. I uh, founded uh, Brazilian Beauty in about 2004, then about six years ago I uh, founded another business called the Australian Skin Institute, uh, which is a product based business. Mm-hmm. So we uh, produce, manufacture and distribute um, a fresh preservative free skincare care uh, here in Australia and we're currently looking at global markets for okay. that particular brand. And um, My partner Andrew and I also own an Angus cattle stud in between Warwick and Stanthorpe. So we breed stud Angus bulls and uh, Andrew was excitedly telling me yesterday that um, one of our bulls um, that's 12 months old at the moment is ranking uh, the number one Angus bull in Australia.
0: And how does that get worked out?
2: Um, Well it's a KPI system uh, so that it... They're actually called estimated breed values, so okay. Angus Australia, every um, stud animal and commercial animal but more so stud animals are registered um, on the Angus Australia um, database and uh, they, they look at factors in the animal uh, like its birth weight, its growth weight, um, intermuscle fat um, and th- there's about, I think about nine key okay. performance indicators. Uh, so he's ranking, yeah, strongly in, in all factors, so right. Andrew's delighted.
0: But he's one year old?
2: That's correct. So um, normally we sell our bulls at um, a rising two year old, so almost two years right. old. Uh, so so we've just sold the majority of our bulls. Um, but yeah, so, so he's, he's a younger one, but we've just had them all scanned okay. and, and tested.
0: And uh, were either of you in agribusiness prior to uh, deciding to do that?
2: No. Uh, So I'm from the UK and I grew up uh, kind of down the road, I suppose, from a farm in a semi-rural area. And uh, Andrew, uh, both of his parents were school teachers, so they used to spend a lot of time in school holidays out at Stanthorpe. So he just loves it.
0: And that's his full-time gig?
2: Oh, no, he helps out. Uh, We work together as well at Brazilian Beauty. Uh Uh, But he does love being on the farm.
0: Right. And so, Brazilian Beauty, you said 21 uh, shop fronts?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Right.
0: And are they just in Queensland or nationally?
2: Um, We have three interstate, and the rest Uh are in southeast Queensland. Uh, So, it's it's a franchise model. Mm -hmm. Uh, Five are company owned, Uh, the rest are franchised. it's uh, look it's a great business. Brazilian beauty is em- about empowering women and, and people uh, that's our team members and our clients to own their own style of beautiful. Uh, we uh, employ about 200 team members mm-hmm. company wide um, across our 21 locations and we see over 200,000 customers. Um, every year
0: right and uh, the global expansion will that just be the products business or the Brazilian beauty business as well
2: yeah look you never know but at this stage you know it's it's tricky with a franchise system um, or a bricks and mortar location mm-hmm. uh, because you have to look I suppose for a lease a franchisee and, and hire a team um, so that, that, that can take some time. Um, whereas, you know, with a product based business, it's, uh, very scalable. And I think, uh, especially in today's global economy, you mm-hmm. know, where you can look at things like 3PL and drop shipping and, you know, you've got the likes of Amazon, not only servicing the U S but also the European market. Um, and look, if you'd have asked me about ASI, maybe 12, 18 months ago, I would have totally said we'll be scaling that model via a conventional distribution model. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a distributor Mm -hmm. or a stockist. Um, But I think because of the changing landscape with social media and social media influences, um, we've seen how powerful that can be Mm. um, here in Australia. So the likelihood is will look at duplicating that that model right. in the U.S. and okay. the U.K.
0: And uh, you were telling me just before we started recording, you're doing some really interesting things with EY at the moment. Uh, tell us about that.
2: Yeah. Um, well, look, I think uh, EY do an amazing job of supporting entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and uh, especially female entrepreneurs. Uh, so I was on the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program about four four years ago but this year I'm one of um, EY's entrepreneurial winning women for Asia-Pacific so they've chosen uh, 16 women from the Asia-Pacific region um, to represent uh, EY and uh, earlier on this year we went to India Uh, we then went to Monte Carlo and I'm delighted to be going to Palm Springs in Mm -hmm. the US with them in November so I'm really, uh, e- EY is just an absolutely brilliant network to be part of. So part of the upcoming conference is not just, a com- not just an amazing conference with amazing guest speakers, um, but also the opportunity to have strategic uh, business meetings there with um, potential strategic partners. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, let's come back and talk more about all of those things. And uh, yep. I'm also interested in your new uh, It's Discovery uh, show. Yeah. Uh, but, but let's go back now to, you know, where it all began for you in your early life. You mentioned you were from the UK. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and mum and dad, brothers and sisters growing up, etc.
2: Yeah, so um, I'm from Chester, right? which is in the middle of Liverpool and Manchester. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically all of my family are nutcase Liverpool supporters. Um, Liverpool is like a religion mm-hmm. um for my family. So uh every time I go back to the UK we always have to go to Anfield and, and watch Liverpool play. I was born, yeah, just outside of Chester, um you know, a semi rural, I suppose, small community. Um, My uh, mum is actually deaf. Okay. My mum was born deaf. Right. Um, My dad uh, was from an accounting background, but um, opened up his own business. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was actually in a business uh, recycling waste. Okay. Which, you know, for probably his time was kind of quite revolutionary. Um, But my dad uh, died suddenly when I was 14, Mm -hmm. uh, which was really quite traumatic. Uh, for our family I've got um, two sisters uh, So one uh, 18 months older than me And one 4 years younger
0: mm-hmm. And what about mum So uh, uh, did she then need to go and work Or was she um, uh, What was her role in the family
2: Yeah, So my mum pretty much uh, I shouldn't say she's never worked in her life right. But um, my mum is kind of like the best mum in the world <laughs> She's like the best cook um, She's a great gardener Uh, like so much love and affection for for her children. She's just an absolutely brilliant mum. But when my dad died, she actually had a nervous breakdown Mm. and ended up being in hospital for about a year. So that was a really kind of traumatic time, I think, for us as a family. We went from, you know, having like the perfect family life, I suppose at that stage... I I'd always had aspirations to be a lawyer. I okay. could have always see myself being a barrister. I I don't know what TV shows I was watching, but you know, that's that's the vision I had for myself. Um but when my dad died, that kind of changed everything. So I ended up leaving school at 16 and um I was really fortunate in that um my dad uh, his business used to contract with Shell UK mm-hmm. Limited. And uh, Shell had a, a plant called Shell Stanlow, uh, which at that time probably hired about 5,000 people. So I uh, got the great job at the age of 16 as working on the call board.
1: Wow!
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> with about six other receptionists at that time, and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't the old plugs and popping them in. It was. I'm not quite that old. Uh but you know, literally we just take calls and, and they get transferred through. But at around that time, that would have been like nineteen eighty-eight mm-hmm. and um at that time like Shell World was a company that offered loads of opportunity and uh at that time they were just introducing computers into mm-hmm. the workplace and Shell said to me, Hey, um you know well when we were in, when they were introducing computers, nobody knew how to use a computer, like mm. nobody had seen a computer, but fortunately, I had a competitive advantage in that we had an Atari computer at home okay <laughs> so I was identified as somebody who could use a computer, and uh Shell offered uh to invest in training me, mm-hmm. so then I could train other people in mm-hmm. the office on um how to use a, com- a very 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 basic computer skills. Um but that so that led me from shell stanlow I then
0: more in administration type roles or so actually getting into proper computer programming and you know, being a true propeller head.
2: Yeah, so, um, it, well, it's quite a journey from there. So I initially became a Microsoft Certified Trainer.
0: Okay.
2: Um, I then became a Microsoft Certified Server Engineer.
0: All, all, all while working at Shell?
2: Not all while working at Shell. Uh-huh. So um, worked at Shell Stanlow in, you know, just outside of Chester, and then I moved down to London mm-hmm. with Shell, um, met my ex-husband there, and, um, yeah, and then got offered... Because contracting was rife then. In I, I know that you're from the recruitment space. So um, I actually got headhunted, <laughs> believe it or not, um, and went to work for Morgan Stanley. Okay. And then went to work for the BBC. So over those years as a contractor, because there was such a skill shortage, I was offered opportunities of not only contracts, but actually training with those contracts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just... Yeah, ended up um, with Novell, um, NetWare, and Cisco. Sorry, Cisco. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, look, it was a great journey, and to be honest, when I look back on it, I, you know, I used to walk into those jobs, and a couple of things. I was always proud to work for those organisations. Mm-hmm. I literally used to walk through the door and go, "Wow, bloody hell, how lucky am I?" to work here every day. How lucky am I to work for this organization? I never held a management position, always part of a team. But there wasn't a day where I didn't go to work and question Mm
1: -hmm. why
2: I was there. Because it was like, you know, everybody was amazing. I worked with the most amazing Mm -hmm. people. They were super skilled, super techy. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm just going to be, like, found out <laughs> as being, like, the the kind of dumbest person in my team. Um, but I suppose years later, you reflect back on that and you look at what does make a good team and mm. you need balance in there. And clearly, um, I like talking. So maybe it was communication mm. on my part coupled and, with the, te- you know, basic mm. technical ability.
0: And do you think that, uh, you know, I suppose not negativity but that questioning of am i really good enough to be here you know mm. created within you this sort of entrepreneurial desire to 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 work harder and better in order to be relevant and valid
2: oh totally like yeah i, I mean it, it created that work ethic like mm. when i was a contractor i used to arrive at work 45 minutes early you know prepared to do what I needed to do and you know I'd always leave at least half an hour late like I felt I yeah I felt like I really needed to put value in there every moment that I was there like and and yeah sure I suppose when you have that um dedication albeit through fear um, that that stands you in really good stead to go. You know what? If I work really hard at this, if I put everything into it, if if I focus and if if I give give it everything I've got, then I'm I'm going to get a great mm. result.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so, where did your career sort of go to from there? Mm.
2: So then um, I had two children. So my children um, had my children when I was twenty and twenty-one, but continued working. Mm-hmm. Um, So, my kids are now 24 and 25. Right. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, so uh, I was married to an Australian. Mm -hmm. So, moved over to Australia, uh, lived in Melbourne, and, um, yeah, decided to set up a business in Melbourne. And a friend of mine actually was a headhunter, like she was Canadian, sure. we kind of met each other, she was a headhunter, and she said, oh, I think you'd be really good at headhunting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we got this uh, cool little office in Collins Street, it was just kind of a one room, it had a great view, and at the time we uh, both smoked cigarettes, so we spent most of our day out on the balcony. Um, smoking cigarettes and doing tarot card readings on each other.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> was, much headhunting. No, there was not much.
2: <laughs> I think I was actually quite nervous to pick up the phone, but she was brilliant at it. And she actually headhunted a lot, a lot for credits worth. Right. And um, anyway, but in the midst of that, we, we were looking at other business opportunities. Uh, so we, um, we settled on a flashing jewellery business okay we thought you know flashing jewelry was going to be the next big big thing right. and this was at the time of the first Australian idol mm-hmm. so' it was, you know probably like 15 16 years ago mm-hmm. maybe 15 and um, so we sourced some product uh, from China flashing jewelry and, uh, we pitched, you know, Tennis Australia, Australian Idol. We, we got in front of a lot of people and, and we did, um, get some orders, but mm-hmm. we couldn't fulfill the orders. So okay. it was, it was just a bit of a, a non-event, uh, really at that, st- that time. And during that time, um, my ex-husband and I had broken up and, uh, he, even though he was Australian, he went back to live okay. in the UK and, uh. I actually thought, oh, I really love Australia.
0: Wow, so now you're a single mum yeah. with two kids yeah. and uh, trying to work out what she wants to do when she grows up.
2: Yeah, <laughs> well, it was more like the fear of God, right. you know. It was like, wow, okay, so I've got a couple of choices here. Mm. I can either go back, um, you know, work, um, look, look for an IT contract mm-hmm. or, or full-time job. And I think at, at that stage with my experience from the UK... You know, if I wanted to get paid that kind of money, I'd probably have to move to Sydney, be working for Macquarie or or something similar. And I just kind of thought, you know, I was at that stage in my life. um, I met Andrew as well. And I just kind of thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. I'm actually going to give it a go, opening my own business. I I always work on worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I sat back and I thought, well, what does worst case scenario look like? I've got X amount of money to invest, which wasn't a lot, mm-hmm. um, and you know what what happens if it all if it all falls apart. Mm. Um, so I just got comfortable with that. I thought, okay, so it, I, if it falls apart, I'll lose this money, and I need to go out and get a job. Mm. Well, at that moment, anyway, I needed to go out and get a job. Massive motivation for me um, to get a job was. or or to get a good job or be able to generate a good revenue, was just I really wanted to send my kids to, like, the best school. Right. You know, huge motivation. It's Mm. like I want my kids to um, have a great education. And I suppose because I left school when I was 16, Mm. um, I wanted my kids to be able to, you know, go to university.
0: And so having had a bit of a dabble in recruitment and then in a you know, importing and uh, selling jewellery, what was the logical next business idea for you?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I often look back on that time now and go, why didn't I do something in tech? Right. Like seriously, mm. I, I probably had the skill set, you know, um, in order to do that. But basically, um, I looked around, Andrew and I looked around at several different industries and settled on the beauty industry because uh, it basically hadn't been corporatized. So mm-hmm. the average beauty salon uh, in Australia, in Brisbane at that time, ran with a paper appointment
0: book. So you were in Brisbane now. I was actually still in Melbourne. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but we—I looked at different areas okay. of Australia mm-hmm. and chose Brisbane uh, because of the climate and because of the lack of competition
1: mm-hmm.
2: there. Um, and, you know, we're looking around at different industries as well, the, the Brazilian wax was, like, kind of pretty taboo
1: okay.
2: in uh, 2004, so much so that we needed to get, like, kind of special permission or clearance even to put an ad on the radio
1: mm.
2: um, to talk about Brazilian waxing right. at that time. Um, so s- settled on the beauty industry for those things. You know, the operators in that space... Uh, probably uh you know had had gone to college um and done a one year beauty therapy mm-hmm. diploma may have not had any experience working for any other organization and and what i thought i could really bring to the business was that that structure you know so the structure of uh reporting key performance indicators but even more than just the key performance indicators actually understanding them and being able to put initiatives in place to actually steer and guide the business and the team to success, you know, like training plans, position descriptions. Mm. um, And um, alongside with that as well, I'm quite a girly girl. Mm -hmm. So I I looked at the beauty industry and just thought, um, you know, there was something I liked about it. After being in the corporate space, which I had a great time and loved working for those organizations, the beauty industry is a beautiful place, right? Because it's not just about making people feel, um, look beautiful, mm. it's actually about making them feel beautiful. And I think there's a lot of satisfaction to be taken out of the business where your customers walk out, walk in and they're happy and they walk out and they're delighted mm-hmm. and you've made them feel better about themselves and they've got a spring in their step, you know? Uh, it's it's a beautiful thing
0: but what made you have the confidence i mean you'd never run big teams of people you'd never worked Mm. in retail you'd never worked in beauty you'd never worked Mm. in franchising um where did you get the sort of internal level of comfort that the investment of your you know small amounts of money that you had at the time and more importantly your time was going to be rewarded
2: yeah, well, the reality is at that time I didn't know that. Mm. But I suppose I did the research that I needed to do, which mm-hmm. was, you know, pretty basic. And as I said before, I got comfortable with worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, if it doesn't work, I'll just go out and get a job. And um, look, and from the moment the business opened, I, I didn't quite know what I was getting myself in for. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's no doubt about that. Um, but from when the business opened, like, and even to this day, I feel like I, I have an affinity with mm-hmm. it. Like, I feel that, um, you know, I, clearly I use logic and reporting and um, all of those kind of metrics, but I, I feel like I feel what our customers feel.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I love the customer journey. Um, and look, our business, w- when it opened, all we were doing was Brazilian waxing and spray tanning. Mm-hmm. That's all we did. Like, like how many 20- outlets? Um, well, my main business objectives w- when I did open, and, and one of the reasons for opening my own business, is that um, I wanted to be in a position with my kids where I could, you know, attend a school sports day mm-hmm. and not feel bad about it, or I-, I wanted to have that flexibility in my life. Um, So the objective for me was to have a business that was highly profitable whilst I didn't need to be there. Mm. And the first store, I opened three stores in 15 months Mm. and at less than the two year mark, all of the the stores were profitable. Uh, I'd achieved my business objective. And to be honest, even now, sometimes I reflect back to that moment and go, God, life would be pretty easy if it still just
1: looked like that. Yeah.
0: Oh, look, uh, the entrepreneur's journey, Mm. I I can completely resonate because Mm. there is this bigger is better, but bigger is not necessarily better uh, in terms of stress and profit and Mm. and all those sort of things. Mm. But, um, I mean, it just is testament to the fact that if you've got a very strong work ethic Mm. and you actually love what you do, Mm. you know, that can overcome a lot of obstacles, um, uh, which I imagine must be true, you know, for the beginning of your business. When you decided, okay, I'm going to do this now, mm-hmm. and you did a sort of a, an inventory of your skill set, were there any glaringly obvious holes? And you went, wow, if I'm going to do this well, I really need to upskill or get you know support for me in these particular areas.
2: Oh yeah, totally, loads of areas. So um, from bookkeeping,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, uh, look, I never really had any skills in marketing. But for some reason, I, I just love that space and, and veer towards it. Uh, but one of the best things that we did is um, at about the six-month uh, um, stage, um, I, I realized that we really needed some external help in, in the shape of a business coach. Mm-hmm. So we got an industry business coach and mm-hmm. it was absolutely brilliant, probably best thing that that we've ever done. And I used to love it. We used to meet up with him every week and he'd say, you know, here's, here's a new little snippet or here's something new that you can add to this module or here's some advice from somewhere else. You know, go away and do it. And yep. he'd give us... You know, I suppose a new task to do every week. You know, we busily go away and do it. We come back the next week and say we've done that. And we went on this journey with him for about a year. And um, after a year, uh, he said, "Oh, I'd really like to invite you and Andrew round to my house to meet my wife mm-hmm. to have dinner." I was, like, so excited. I was, like, going to be, like, I was, like, oh, my God. He's going to impart, like, the module of all modules. Right. Like, it's going to be that, you know, this shining light piece of information. It must be a super special occasion. Anyway, we got round to his house, and he said, "Um, I'm not going to coach you anymore. Like, I, I can't teach you anything else. Like, you've done everything. But uh, I was, like, devastated. I felt like I'd just been, like, dumped publicly by my boyfriend or something. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so, like, that is one of the biggest things I'd even, you know, recommend anybody go out Mm. and do. I wish I'd done that from day one. Mm. You know, just got somebody from the industry that that guided us Mm -hmm. from day one. But I just think with any business or... Look, I'm really lucky because I love what I do. So if I've got to work at weekends or work till late at night, you know, I, I, I don't care,
1: mm.
2: you know. So I think it, it it all comes down to that effort that you put in. And it's, it's not just about effort putting in, but it's about listening, listening to your team, listening to your customer. And one thing I really do understand with both Brazilian Beauty and the Australian Skin Institute is that I don't own the brand, you know mm-hmm. we don't own the brand, our customers do by choosing to come back time and time again, and I think the challenges are as your business gets gets bigger like we're we're sitting in our our head office mm-hmm. now, we're not sitting in a Brazilian beauty store, but you know sometimes I even find for myself and my team that you know. We, because we're working on the numbers or the accounting or the marketing or, or whatever, you know, you get that one step of removal yeah. from who we are and actually what mm-hmm. we do. Um, so I, you know, I, I think it's very important for everybody that's around a business to be to have that experience of being on the coal face mm-hmm. with the customer. Because it's all very well to set systems, policies, and procedures, and you know, make decisions without you know understanding and having empathy for your team and understanding what effect that has on the customer mm. so I'm always acutely aware of that
0: okay and so 13 14 years down the track yeah. you know um post you've had your coach for a year he mm. feels that he's reached the point where you know uh uh, he can no longer uh, offer anything further you've pretty much uh, got your black belt mm. so uh, so what were some of the other key milestones in the evolution of the business from then to now?
2: Yeah well look once um, you know at a, around the two year mark um, businesses were trading really well everything was great and I think as the branding was slightly different and it was a new product in that market a flurry of people just approached and said hey is this this is a franchise, right? Is it from the UK, from mm. the US? Where where are you guys from? And uh, there was a lot of people wanting, you know, to, to buy locations. Mm. So I suppose that that was a, a key moment and a key decision moment to go. Okay, well, clearly there's an appetite here from the customer. Uh, wh- what what do we do? Do do we go with a franchise model or do we go with a company owned model? And uh, the decision was made at that time um, to go with the franchise model. um, Pure, well, not not just about capital and Mm -hmm. and funding, but also um, you know knowing that you've got other uh, business partners who are interested in the team, in the customer, and can own their own local market share. So, so that that was definitely Mm -hmm. um, a, a huge. I think, moment and then we went on and um, opened multiple stores. Um, I think um, another moment uh, would be probably about, you know, four or five years ago when I went on the EY program because Mm -hmm. prior to that, uh, my life at Brazilian Beauty, I I did no networking, Um, a lot of my best work I did in my pyjamas at (laughs) home. (laughs) and i just kind of hid behind i suppose i hid behind the brand mm. you know and i i don't know why but um and and as the brand it kind of was weird cuz then as the brand grew and we all of a sudden had all of these locations you know you'd be out and about okay i'll i kind of reframe this initially when i opened brazilian beauty and you know, I might bump into people, and they say, "Oh, they say, what do you do?" I would tell them, mm. and they'd almost like laugh and scoff and go, oh, "You know," or it's a bit, you know, people people would look down mm. on it uh, because
0: was, of the type of business it was, or just because they just viewed it as just a bit frivolous.
2: I, I think um, both of the above,
0: One right. of the above. Okay, yeah,
2: but it was it was a very different response. So um, then when the, when the business had some growth and size and momentum behind mm. it, the response then was very different. Sure, It was kind of like, whoa, that's actually a really good business model mm. and, and, and that's great. So when I um, went on the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program, um, I think just the, the coaching and the connections mm-hmm. uh, with EY and I think also them having that environment where they really foster women and invest mm-hmm. in women um, has given me gave me a lot of confidence mm-hmm. to kind of move forward and and think bigger like I'm sure 10 years ago I wouldn't be sitting here going oh I'm, I'm going to have a skincare brand and I'm going to totally try mm-hmm. and take it global mm. whereas now I suppose with the input and the education and the networks that I've got now it, it has put me in that frame of mind that I can do it
0: Okay and so I mean there's a lot of organisations small businesses. that look at this, um, you know I'm going to go out and franchise my IP, mm. uh, very few do it successfully. Mm-hmm. What was it about the way that you approached franchising in particular that you think it gave you a competitive advantage?
2: Mm. Well look, um, one of our I suppose mantras that we have at work is Um, At Brazilian Beauty, the client is king, Mm -hmm. and we treat our team members and our franchisees as we would a client. Mm -hmm. So, I suppose for every location that we've opened, we've looked at it as if it's our location. Mm -hmm. You know, would we be happy? Um, to take that on and also we look at our franchisees as part of our team and our team is like a family and we all know that families can argue and scrap and fight but at the end of the day we all look after each other and and we want the best for them so I think just having uh, the systems and the support in place um, to look after those people because there's some franchise systems that you you might buy into and they're like there you go there's the brand there's Mm -hmm. everything off you go you know, go for your life. Yep. Whereas all of our franchisees, you know, we, we hold them close. Uh, we we not only train them, but we train their team members. So if a new team member of Brazili- any Brazilian beauty store joins, doesn't matter if it's company-owned store or franchise, they spend five days here mm-hmm. on an induction. So learning about our brand, our philosophy, our culture, um, as well as all of our, our signature moves. And, and it just doesn't stop there. Um, we visit our franchise uh, franchisee stores every month. Uh, we hold meetings every month, not just for our franchisees, but another meeting for their managers. Mm-hmm. So we are really like that, that big family, okay. that big community. And, and look, any business is about people, right? You, you know, you gotta have your people uh, feeling good, feeling safe, feeling supported, feeling educated, feeling invested in. And, and that's, that's how a brand grows. Mm.
0: And how much of the EY uh, influence has been validation of your sort of strategic ideas? Mm. Or how much of it has been them leading you? We think that this would be a good thing for you to potentially implement in your business.
2: Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think uh, validation of ideas, and also maybe uh, you know scrapping some ideas Mm -hmm. as well. So great sound sound Mm soundboard. And when I say that ey community, I do mean ey, and I mean uh, the other people who've been on the entrepreneur program. So the other entrepreneurs I've met that you know I can now have conversations with, you know, about business. Uh, you know because business is hard right and sometimes when you're on when you're on you you can feel very on your own
1: Mm. like
2: I can never come into work if I'm having a crap day Mm. I can never come into work and talk to my team about it or if I'm stressed out about something or if I want to bounce some ideas I I never want to labor my team with that Mm. you know because they've got their roles and I think as as a leader I need to be uh, positive and and strong for them. So, EY have definitely, but with that community that they've given me an option to have multiple soundboards,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, as well feedback from people who are experienced mm-hmm. or they've actually walked the walk themselves, mm-hmm. okay. uh, which I really like. And yes, they have pointed me
1: mm-hmm. as
2: well, which is great because it's kind of like ah, oh, I I didn't think of that, yeah. or oh, I didn't know that was possible, or. Yeah, so so a combination of both, but
0: it's been. Or brilliant. if you like me, oh, I've been distracted by the shiny new toy, and uh, you know, being brought back to let's keep it simple. Um, mm. And when and so, how much of your time is looking out to the world, um, not necessarily specifically in your industry but more mm. broadly at what other people are doing going wow I love that idea I could bring that in and incorporate that into my business.
2: Yeah, it kind of varies sometimes sometimes all of my time mm-hmm. is spent looking out to the world and then um, you know if we've got a project on here that uh, that needs my time mm-hmm. then that's where my focus will okay. be. but I'm, I'm really fortunate I've got a great team here so I can look out an awful lot.
0: And so if we were sitting here in a five years' time and talking about Brazilian beauty, do you have a clear view as to what that will look like then? Yeah, totally. Right. And so, you know, what, um, what are the kind of things that you're excited about taking the business towards in that period of time?
2: Yeah, well, um, we've just implemented cosmetic injections okay. into our business, which um, I know is a huge growth area. We've had cosmetic injections in uh, for the past three years, but we had a third party providing right. them and we were under contract.
0: So, so for our... very uncouth, you know, unfashionable men like myself, yes. explain to us what a cosmetic injection is.
2: Uh, so it's an anti-aging, right. um, anti-wrinkle So you're or talking filler. Botox? So or... Botox and fillers. Right. Um, uh, but we're also moving into a really exciting space because whilst I was in India, um, I met with a Indian stock exchange listed company there, a uh, huge um, beauty or clinic company mm. over there, and they were saying uh, a huge um hair regrowth treatments have become 30% of their business okay. over the past three years.
0: For men or for women or both? Both.
2: Wow. Yeah. So um, since I've been back from India, mm. uh, we've been doing uh, a lot of research into PRP and dermal rolling for hair regrowth. So we're launching those treatments. Okay. Which I think is going to be super exciting. I've got to say, so that's one of the leading things I suppose EY have taken me into, because Ernst right. Young took me to India, mm-hmm. organized for me to meet with that um, particular business. And uh, whilst I was in India, I was like, no way, how can, how can this category be so big, especially for mm. women? Mm. I, I, I get it for guys. Um, but uh, on returning back to Australia, I was saying, oh, you know, I was at this company, it was kind of, you know, a lot of female uh hair growth treatments and then just out of the woodwork from nowhere it was you know people were saying oh my god i've got this hair loss post pregnancy mm-hmm. or i'm premenopausal um or, you know or i just love my hair to be thicker naturally mm-hmm. uh so yeah hair growth treatments um cosmetic injections as i said but i think the more exciting area of that and a lead on um from more the PRP so which is platin rich plasma therapy mm-hmm. treatments that's where you actually take your blood you draw right. the customers blood you spin it in a centrifuge and um, you extract the growth factors and the platelets and you inject it back into the area so that could be for facial rejuvenation mm-hmm. or it could be for hair regrowth and there's a lot of sports doctors at the moment that use it, you know for knee and shoulder mm-hmm. injuries mm-hmm. already so when I look at that technology um, over the next five years i think we'll not only be dealing with our own blood but we'll actually be looking at at our own stem cells and i think that's where the industry is going to get really exciting
0: Mm. yeah there's certainly i listen to a lot of podcasts and some of them talk about you know this stem cell research and the kind of things that are actually happening in the u.s which you know are just literally mind-blowing um Mm. the uh uh, you know the massive effect it will have on life you know mm. uh, particularly this idea that which I'm, I'm fascinated by you know, people having greater longevity you mm. know and, and potentially people of our generation living well into our early 100s mm. um, and you think well what, what does that mean for the entire not only the fabric of society in terms of how people work and how they choose to work but you know um, this idea of Wanting to remain young and vital, and even though i 'm old um, there 's no point in being old if i 'm decrepit so um, it 's really this merging you know of beauty and sciences. Um, going to open up a whole new frontier, so I imagine that must be really exciting for you.
2: It's very exciting, and I suppose that's where it ties in with the documentary yeah. that I'm making.
0: Great segue, because so I'm is. keen to talk about
2: this. <laughs> I know, it's it's, it's awesome. Um, so I have a little dog, Scampi, uh, who's who's just a little mongrel and I'm um, she's about nine years old now and I absolutely adore Scampy. she comes to work with me every day she can actually run 20 kilometers with me as well she never goes on a lead she knows when to cross at the traffic lights when the noise changes and uh, I just love this little dog mm. I also have two other dogs and I've always had dogs around me and if uh, Scampi uh, was a Labrador I'd just go out and buy another Labrador but Scampy is a mongrel and she's quite unique and um, and I suppose through the experience that I've had on our farm, where you know we're doing AI and we're doing embryo transfer, uh, cloning is the next step in that. So I'm actually gonna clone my dog, Scampi. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna clone her in uh, South Korea. Um, there's a lab there called Soem. And Soem um, are one of the most profitable businesses in South Korea. Mm-hmm. And they're doing all kinds of research, not just into cloning, into stem cell technology um, so we've
0: specifically for dogs or for everything
2: um, for everything
0: right
2: yeah so look the documentary that we're going to be filming uh, is going to be quite controversial mm-hmm. and uh, I suppose it is going to look at both sides of the argument for cloning um, but but for instance you know if we look at cloning you can go to villages in India at the moment where the majority of the adult population only have one kidney mm. because they've sold the other kidney to put a sheet of tin over there you know mm. uh, as their house and um, you know I think with the the cloning question as well, you know we've we've done a little bit of t v so, mm-hmm. so far around it, and Who's um, we? Uh, as in myself, yeah. And my dog's going right. to okay. the royal we. Yeah. Uh, oh, and also, um, I'm obviously, I'm partnered with a documentary maker, right. um, a company called Flick Chicks. Mm-hmm. So Mandy Lake heads up Flick Chicks. Okay. And she's had um, a few global documentaries to mm-hmm. date. Okay. And interestingly enough, I met Mandy through an Ernst & Young connection. Right. As well. Um but on, on the cloning, I, I think the biggest question um, is going to be centered around, you know, are you playing God? Mm. And, and that's been the feedback to date. And it's like, you know, who, who's to say who's playing God? Are we playing God when we give somebody antibiotics, when we do a cesarean section? Um, part of the doco, we will be visiting the, um, the Global Ethics Committee mm-hmm. in New York. Uh, to have these discussions. But I think we're moving into a stage just in general with um, stem cell technology, with cloning, with even with artificial intelligence, where it's like who, who regulates it mm. and who says well, what we can and can't sure. do.
0: So, again, another area that I'm fascinated in, and let's come back to that, but so just what the logistics are, your dog is nine. Yeah. You'll take the, your dog to this laboratory...
2: So we'll actually um, take her DNA right. here, and then um, her DNA will be taken to the laboratory. Okay. Uh, there'll be a um, a donor dog. Yeah. So the donor dog will create embryos. Right. The embryos will be taken out, and this is very non-scientific. But basically, the 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 donor dog's embryo um, DNA will be extracted uh, from those embryos and scampies will be pushed in. Yep. The embryos then just get re-impregnated yep. into the donor dog, and then the puppies are born.
0: Right. But, I mean, again, I don't know anything about the science. Uh, is your expectation that the new puppy will have the same personality as scampy, or, or is it really just a different dog, just grown you know, in a slightly more unusual way?
2: Yeah, look, uh, at the moment, I don't know the answer to right. that. So that, that'll that be part of the journey, hey? Yeah. Is it nurture or nature? Look, clearly, I'd be delighted if it has a similar person, if the puppies mm-hmm. have, you know, a similar personality to Scampi. If they don't, that's okay as mm-hmm. well. You know, I kind of view it as my dog, Scampi, having puppies. But mm-hmm. one of the major backlashes has been the amount of money that it costs.
1: Okay. You
2: know, so some people are being quite critical Mm -hmm. of, well, why are you spending $130,000 on getting your dog cloned? Mm -hmm. And look, I I suppose my answer to that is just, look, I'm not a materialistic person. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the people in my life, you know, the experiences in my life. I could go out and buy a new car tomorrow. I could get a new kitchen. I could renovate my house and, like, nobody would, you know, nobody would say anything, mm-hmm. but it's like spending that kind of money mm-hmm. on that process, people are just, wow, What? why would you even do that?
0: Are other people cloning other pets and animals as we speak?
2: Yeah, so Soham in South Korea, they've cloned 900 dogs right. to date. Okay. And um, on the documentary, we'll be meeting uh, one of the, the clones. So in the 9-11 cleanup, mm-hmm. there was a, a dog called K-9, and uh, he was exceptional in in, in the um, recovery process there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, they, I think they actually cloned ten
1: right.
0: of those. So okay. we'll be meeting one of well, them. So on, it's on the completely proven technology. Yeah. you're not out there breaking new ground. No. But the idea of the documentary is just for uh, to expose this um, new technology to a broader audience.
2: Yeah, that that's totally right. It's, it's about bringing the average person on the street closer mm. to what's actually going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So we're actually uh, recording three series. So the first is on cloning, second on stem cells, and third on artificial intelligence. But even... Just coming back to that cloning space again. So, cloning is not available in Australia mm-hmm. at the moment, but it probably for, um, for dogs, mm-hmm. but it probably will be in five years. Right. But cloning is already being used in the food production industry. Mm-hmm. So, we'll be covering that um, in the DOCO as well. And look, uh, I mentioned earlier on that we've just bred a bull mm. that is, you know, top mm. in breed in, 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 in Angus in Australia. So, we are working with somebody locally here in Australia uh, called Reinclonation. and uh, we we will be creating clones either if not that bull, another bull, mm-hmm. and impregnating our heifer herd mm-hmm. uh, this year with those clones. Wow! Well, yeah. But I actually met a guy recently at the ECA, um, yeah, here, so the the Brisbane show, and uh, he had cloned his cow. His okay. like favorite stud cow, right? And uh, it was so lovely to meet this guy because mm. you could tell, you know, he just absolutely loves this cow, and mm. he th- he thinks his clone is even better than the original,
0: right? Which is uh, from a health perspective or a personality perspective, Both. right? Okay, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, a company that I've been watching with some interest is. Um, uh, based in the u s name Memphis meats, and what they 're doing is they 're now growing meat in a laboratory, so there is no requirement to slaughter an animal. they just mm. get you know the uh, the stem cells or whatever the technology mm. is and, and, uh, and you know there 's a whole bunch of people who are looking at going oh, i don 't know if i 'd eat meat that mm. what didn 't come from a live animal mm. so but I imagine at some point, probably not too far in the future it 'll just be taken for granted yeah you know um, uh, This cloning idea is, uh, I mean, I'd never even heard of somebody cloning their pet before talking to you. Mm. And yet you're saying it's already happening and it'll be here in Australia in five years. So that's quite amazing.
2: Yeah, I know. Well, look, and I think, you know, as a society now, we are attached to our animals. Mm. Like our animals are like a member of our family, really, Mm. really, aren't they? And uh, I, I know I certainly get a lot of companionship and comfort from um my dog scampi and look when i've been saying that i'm going to have Scampy clone for the last few years so it's it's not a recent thing and the response i get from people all the time is like wow does that like even exist yeah is, you know and, and they're, they're curious they want to know the process and and what does it look like so i think it'd be really nice to share that journey mm-hmm. you know with with other dog owners and
0: do you see a business opportunity for yourself in that space or you'll be a consumer
2: yeah, look, I don't see, um, look, potentially there could be, but that that's certainly not a motivation around mm-hmm. it. Like, I certainly won't be selling scampi, Clones no. or scampy puppies or creating but I a scampy breed.
0: assisting other people to clone their animals. Oh,
2: yeah, to- totally. Why not? Mm. Um, I-, I, th- I think there could be a few opportunities mm-hmm. um, in that space.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a cat named Podge. I rescued him from the pound. <laughs> he cost 100 bucks. He's a good mate, but I'm not sure if I'd go out and spend 130,000 to clone him. But by the time, you know, it might be a lot cheaper. Yeah,
2: that's right. Well, look, for instance, in Australia, to clone a cow, I'm pretty sure it's only about ten thousand dollars. Right. So big price difference, but apparently the technology—it's not just like oh, okay, I've cloned an animal, so now I can mm. clone every mm. kind of animal. Apparently, there's you know um, idiosyncrasies to each
0: different okay. breed. Interesting. Yeah. And so, when will the uh, the documentary go to air?
2: Uh, So it will be coming out next year. Okay.
0: And when's the actual cloning event happening?
2: Oh, that will be happening uh, if not before the end of this year, very early next year.
0: Exciting times. Yes. And so... um a big reason for this podcast is that there are a lot of people who listen who are aspiring CEOs or business owners and so on, and they want to hear, you know, the wisdom of those who have walked the path before them. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked about a few things already in terms of your, you know, your work ethic and your passion for your business and um, this idea of building a family-style community. But what are some of the other, you know, key learnings that you've had in your career that? If you had the opportunity to share those with us, you'd say, these have been instrumental in enabling me to be successful.
1: Mm.
2: Well, I definitely think... I'm going to sort of almost rehash just a couple of statements that Mm -hmm. I've made before. So understand, you know, having a great product... And understanding that you don't own your brand, your clients do by choosing to come back time and time again. So it is all about the customer. And in that same vein, it's it's all about the team and the people that you have around you. And um, no doubt that will change over the years. And at times you need to hire in externally to get expertise at Mm -hmm. the right level. Um, Yeah, I just think love and be passionate about what you do and... Um, back yourself and believe in yourself so own your own brand uh, and that, that was a thing that I, I didn't do for, for a lot of years and I wish I'd done sooner mm-hmm. you know, so get out, network, meet other people, uh, meet other like minded people and um, you know, if you are creating a new brand, like everybody that you can touch and educate on what you do and your passion for it, um, I think is so valuable Um, I think just dream big, you know, like, yeah, aim for the stars. And if, you know, you only get to the moon, then, then that's okay. And probably my last piece of advice is, you know, I think I even started off this podcast with this, but I come back to it all the time. You know, when you're making a decision, just get comfortable with worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. What does worst case scenario look like? get comfortable with that and then just uh, smash it
0: out.-hmm Well I think that uh, that's excellent advice and, and certainly you know, um, harbors or reflects my own experience as a business owner. Mm. sometimes you've just got to just bite into it and chew like crazy, don't mm. you That's exactly <laughs> right And I suppose for you in your space thinking that you know they're already saying the person has the person has already been born who will live to be a thousand years old. Wow. Um, because uh, the growth in technology and so on is just so immensely uh, exciting mm. that that uh, means you've got customers for life, meaning, you know, a long, long time.
2: That's it. That's beautiful.
0: <laughs> well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, Francesca, have a fantastic afternoon.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much, Richard. Okay.
0: Well, thanks again for joining me on the RHA podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Francesca. I look forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.